welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. All right, so today is a really special day for us, uh, and I have uh, I've been looking forward for this day for a really long time, before, even before I joined HashiCorp. So a couple of years ago, uh, Armand and Mitchell announced HashiCorp Research. Uh, I was always really, really curious, like what the research team was working on, and you know what are the next challenges for HashiCorp. So. Today, all the secrets are going to come out. Uh, we are really lucky to have uh, John and Robbie from re- the research team join us for, for our podcast. So let me start with John first. So I started like Googling John on, on you know, just like trying to see, uh, learn a little bit more about him. And it seems like he has a really interesting past and I would let him introduce himself. Hey, yeah, thanks for doing this. Uh, this is definitely a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so I have definitely zigged and zagged. Um, I uh, went to uh, university to study computer science, but then um, pivoted into philosophy. Um, and then went back and did a, a master's in uh, computer science. Um, and then in my career um, in, in computing, I've gone back and forth between research uh, and, and product groups. Um, and so, yeah, for me, industrial research is this uh, really nice sweet spot where we get to uh, you know, appeal to the theory and the research, but we, we get to apply it in practice as well. Yeah, that 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 to me is like a super interesting kind of like, um, you know, transition for 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 me to kind of watch as um as an you know fellow engineer so for, so why did you end up joining hashicorp out of all companies or things that you could work on yeah there was a bit of serendipity here actually so i was at microsoft research for seven years um and that was an amazing experience i got to work with some of the really seasoned we had turing award winners sort of you know the the nobel prize of computer science effectively uh, girdle prize winners the equivalent for theoretical computer science i got to work with you know some of these people who were at Xerox Park at the beginning, and, and uh, Deck had worked on things like uh, AltaVista, um, and it was a you know, very humbling and amazing opportunity to, to get to work with these people and uh, learn sort of the craft uh, from them. Um, but uh, the way these things happen, um, our uh, lab, uh, the Silicon Valley lab, was uh, shut down. They laid us off uh, in uh, 2014. Um, so after that, I yeah, I had to, I had some different options. I could have gone back into product. I was at Apple previously. I could have gone there, but I decided uh, I went to Samsung Research um, and had an interesting period working on uh, deep learning and scaling deep learning. With I'd been doing GPU clusters and things, um, so I got to sort of move up the stack to actually do the, the machine learning uh, rather than just the systems underneath. Um, but um, yeah, the big corporate thing wasn't for me, um, uh, and luckily uh, Armin had. Read some of my research uh, when they were working on Nomad, the Nomad scheduler. I had done a scheduling project at Microsoft yeah. uh, called Quincy, um, and it, it's quite well received. Uh, and, you know, it's people always study it. If you're going to do scheduling in grad school, you, you read our paper. Of course, um, uh, HashiCorp had done the due diligence and had read all the relevant research going into uh, designing Nomad. And so then um, my resume happened to pass uh, you know, through uh, Armin's inbox and he saw, saw that, oh my gosh, this is someone who worked on Quincy. He didn't even realize there was a Silicon Valley Microsoft Research Lab, otherwise he might have been reaching out sooner. Um, and then, yeah, it was just uh, you know, a, a love fest pretty much. I, I couldn't believe that HashiCorp was here being so principled in its use of research um, and yeah just sort of bucking the trend saying hey 
we're a small company, but let's just do this. Let's not let's not do this by convention. Let's let's follow our instincts and and be principled. Um, and so it was just an amazing opportunity. And yeah, I'm very happy to be here. What what is your work at HashiCorp Research, and what is HashiCorp Research? So HashiCorp Research is what we would call a industrial research lab. And that just means that we're embedded in a company. We're not part of an academic institution. But because it's an industrial research lab, we sort of have a double-headed mandate. So as a research lab, we need to advance the state of the art in the areas that we work. It's not research if all the answers are known. But because we're HashiCorp's research lab, then we need to also advance the technologies that are used in HashiCorp's tools. So it's sort of straddling uh, those two worlds of the, uh, the, the academic uh, and applying it into the, the products. Super interesting. So it, it is a bit unusual for a company uh, with HashiCorp size to invest in research or create a research team, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It is. It was a rare opportunity that, that I encountered. And uh, you'll see a lot of startups that are based on research, very often a grad student and maybe the professor at some point during the research, they look at each other and say, oh, let's, let's start a company. And so right now, obviously, especially in things like machine learning, you'll see a ton of companies that the company is based on a piece of research or a few pieces of research. Now, HashiCorp isn't generally based on any one technology. Um, if people haven't gone and read the Tower of HashiCorp, I really recommend that they go check that out because it's very good insight into the, the rationale that Mitchell and Armin have used from the beginning, and we still apply it diligently. And one of the key points in the Tower of HashiCorp is that we're centered on workflows, not technologies, which is, means it's a top-down approach. Um, uh, and as part of that, not wanting to be tied to any one particular technology, uh, but also wanting to track and use the best technologies from the beginning, the design process that they've put in place and that we use has always uh, involved starting out with a survey of all the relevant published research making sure, uh, evaluating the research, trying to figure out what would be the best, most relevant algorithms, the ones most likely to work at scale and in our products, incorporating those, combining sometimes multiple pieces of research. And you'll see this console, Surf, Nomad, as their product pages point out, there's a lot of uh, previous research that's been leveraged in there, and the Gossip Protocol, Network Coordinates, we have some really good use of uh, previous research. And uh, Sentinel, there was a very deep survey that this is in the area of complex reactive systems for, for the policy as code. So uh, we absolutely have always gone deep on research. It's pretty interesting. You mentioned that, that Armon read one of your papers, and, and that was actually how, how, how you sort of ended up at HashiCorp. But what do you think it was that, that led um, Mitchell and Armon and the, the other members of the leadership team to decide to sort of go from consuming research to actually forming a research group? That's a good question. So, yes, I think a lot of companies do make use of research, though, uh, you know, sometimes you see things being reinvented and you have to wonder if they have gone and and, and read deeply enough. But a lot of the ones who do use research, yes, they don't choose to uh, give back to the community. I think partly there is that sort of principle we have built on open source and uh, we'd want to honor, uh, you know, uh, 
the, the, the work that we leverage. And we um, you know from, I think from that perspective, they want to give back. Uh, but also we have something to give back because, for example, the, the gossip work I mentioned um, in the swim stuff that we took, uh, when you look at that paper, 56 machines was the, the total number of computers that those academics had uh, at their disposal. And Werner Vogels was actually was at Cornell. Werner Vogels, now the CTO of, of uh, AWS, was there and he helped them get together the 56 machines. And we, of course, now... Our implementation is deployed at a scale of thousands of machines. Uh, plus, we also take multiple pieces of research and we we combine those together. So we have a lot of practical experience. We've taken some of these things far beyond the scale and the settings that they were originally in, uh, in, envisioned for. And that's some valuable learning. And you're actually seeing things like the, the ACM, the Association of Computing Machinery. They're very interested now in bridging the connection between the researchers and the practitioners. ACMQ is a new publication. Um, and Usenix, of course, has always been more practitioner focused. But people are very interested in hearing about the practical learnings and experiences so we we definitely have that to offer as well as doing novel research we we have some insights so um we're we're sort of hitting both sides of that and what about you robbie do you have anything to add to that yeah so um when i joined hashicorp i kind of put it on myself to kind of dig deep and discover some of the history of hashicorp and how it formed uh particularly because for years using hashicorp products i would read things like the forbes 30 under 30 and read about mitchell and armand and i'd always hear different stories about the history of, of Mitchell's experiences uh, in university and how they met. And I was I always wanted to know what the actual, like how the story of HashiCorp's formation worked. Um, so to answer the question that you asked, Nick, about how did we get to having a research group? Uh, the first thing I would say is that Mitchell and Armand are initially researchers. Like they met in a research group. Right. Um, they they met because Armand was handing over a research project to Mitchell, um, and Armand even ended up uh, getting into Berkeley for a PhD. Um, and he had the option of going to Berkeley or taking the uh, the VC money and starting HashiCorp with uh, Mitchell. So uh, I guess you know, kind of fundamentally, have been researchers at HashiCorp even before they were even before there was a HashiCorp. Mitchell and Armand were researchers. So research is just embodied into the, the, the principles of the organization. It flows through it like it's lifeblood. That's right, yeah. So your first paper, the Lifeguard papers, just come out, where you look at the SWIM algorithm and how it can be improved when you're dealing with clusters larger than the original sort of 56 that were covered by the, the original paper. What does it actually mean to, to publish an academic paper? Can you, can you kind of talk us through the, the process of going through all of that? Sure. So um, actually, it's interesting. Different academic communities have different models for the way they share their research. And actually, computer science is rapidly changing. Uh, Historically, you would only share your work once it was accepted into a conference. So you would you would submit uh, anonymized and, and, you know, people, everyone had signed sort of non-disclosure agreements effectively saying that they wouldn't share your work outside of reviewing it. And then surprise, surprise, the curtain would lift on the day of the conference and, and the proceedings would be available. Either you'd have to pay some money to get them or they, depending on the organization, they'd be publicly available. But this was very much the peer-reviewed conference publication model. And we still do that. That's still the primary model in, com- in computer science. But 
the fast pace of progress in deep learning in the last few years encouraged people to start to share their results before they were accepted into the conference. And this is the, the preprint model. And interestingly, the website we use, most people, you'll hear people say that it's been put up on archive. It's actually spelled A-R-X-I-V.org, but we say archive. And that was actually created, uh, it's, oh, it's run by Cornell now, but it was actually run originally by Los Alamos Labs, and it was for the dissemination of physics research and physics being a, a hard science before their model was to be accepted into a journal rather than a conference but you, nobody would get their work accepted into that journal until there were multiple demonstrated reports of people having reproduced your results because this is an experimental science so they needed a mechanism to share their work and for a long time it was primarily physics and there was some computer science but deep learning because it's moving so fast has thrown the doors open and really made people want to get their work out early and get get more feedback the other thing is that there's sort of a, a wider movement of, uh, towards open access uh, and this includes uh, trying to focus on having more reproducibility a problem that not just computer science but a lot of academia has had is people assert things in a paper and you if you have a graph and in the stats you know people kick the tires but you don't necessarily share the raw data you don't go drill into all the details of, of, of how you got your experimental results and that's poor science and so there's a there's a broader move afoot to have more accountability and more open access to, to the data and of course open source really dovetails we we can open source our code people can look at exa- and, and reproduce the, the experiments now, when I read your paper, it was actually quite accessible. I'm, I'm not an academic, um, but but I found that I could actually read and understand a lot was going on and, and the, the sort of the methodologies of the approach. Around the results, we, we are obviously an open source company. Do you think we've maybe got some intention to be more open around our research? Will you be kind of publishing a, a sort of um, – Deep analysis of the the statistics and and the methodologies that go into to that with with future papers or or potentially even the lifeguard paper. Well, we're certainly going to open source once it has been accepted into the conference. We're going to open source the data that we collected for the experiments and the frameworks that we used to run the experiments, so people would be able to pick that up. And it was all run in Azure and AWS, so people would be provided they want to spend the money, they'd be able to to reproduce the experiment. Um, yeah, and sometimes people do an extended version of a paper. You know, you're constrained typically a 12 or 14 page limit, and then you can go on if you have a lot more information, proofs or, or supplementary information. In our case, I think we're more likely to use uh, GitHub repositories to share that additional information. But absolutely, yes, we, we, we our work is based on open source, and and we want to share as much of our uh, results as we can through that. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. Um, I'm I'm looking forward for that paper to come out. And- uh, everyone to kind of read it. Uh, so at HashiCorp, workflows are kind of built into our DAO as well. So what is a workflow for a research-driven project? Uh, you know, may that be LifeCard or anything else that we would do in the future? First, we should talk about the, the sort of foundation of HashiCorp research because when I came in in mid-2016, 
there was a big backlog. As discussed, Mitchell and Armin have been very principled uh, from the beginning, but along the way, of course, with the velocity and that scaling up, as this, even though the company was scaling up, there's only so many things people can work on at once. So uh, I, I sat down with Armin initially, and we had a long laundry list of, hey, wouldn't it be cool if, and what about this idea? And so there was a lot of sort of identifying and prioritizing opportunities based on our existing tool set, um, and that led into to going and doing some of this sort of deep dive literature surveys, evaluating. Um, an interesting example, we, we were really keen on anomaly detection. We were thinking, right, we're going to go for it with anomaly detection. And I uh, pretty quickly, I think we, we established that there wasn't really a good uh, solutions are not robust enough for uh, our standards and our, our needs. We don't want to create the, the, the dog that barks in the night or the car alarm that goes off all night and people just tune it out. Yeah, that's not helping our user base. So there's a sort of general rubric of has the research got to the point where something is robust enough for us to take it forward? Or do we have an insight and we think maybe we can see a differentiator, what's missing to make it robust or something where we have, because we have the inside knowledge of the semantics of our tools, maybe we can make that difference that a general approach couldn't make. So there's a lot of, there's been a, a lot of that and it's been interesting, you know, we, we're not, we haven't necessarily gone after the things that we thought we were going to go after uh, in the first instance. There's, they're still, they're on the roadmap. But we figured out some other things that are maybe more um, sure, sure wins or stronger opportunities or things that we need to solve first to make things like anomaly detection more robust. We, so we have a, we have a kind of a now a, a sort of a roadmap for the, the next couple of years laid out. Um, and now that once we got past that initial phase and we started to do projects, it's settled down. We definitely need to be connected to the business need. We're a small organization. We're an early stage company. We don't have the luxury of going off and doing blue sky research at this point. You know, we need we can take risks, but we have our portfolio has to be biased towards success at this point. So, you know, we 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 need that's you know this is how we're going to impact the bottom line of the company and help it grow and be able to do more of this so um definitely being connected to the business need um and then the, we do always do the deep dive into the into the existing work and again as i say is there a robust approach or can we make a robust approach uh, and it's sort of the, the guiding light there and then and then we prototype you know we and we're a little, little bit like a startup within within a company within a startup we're um we have to be very uh, agile and lean and we do the you know the minimum viable product. Uh, we we want to test you know fail early and and, and f- figure out how to um, test the things we're making. So the prototyping is a large part of it. We also have today with us Robbie uh, McKinstry, and Robbie's the first HashiCorp intern I think who's now joined as a, a, a full member of the research team. And Robbie, when when we were hanging out in Pittsburgh last year, I bumped into your dad. And oh. oh yeah, and, and literally the first thing that he said to me was, "You know, Robbie had been accepted for a scholarship. I think he said like medicine or, or something like this. But you, you had a paid scholarship to do um, science or medicine at, at one of the top um, colleges, and and you you decided to follow your heart and you went 
into uh, computer science at CMYU. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how your, your sort of decision was made to join um, both HashiCorp but also follow a career in computer science? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, initially I was doing a lot of uh, biochemistry research. Um, it was not a top college. It was a mediocre college. <laughs> and uh, I did end up going to the University of Pittsburgh for computer science. But I, I was doing, yeah, I was doing a lot of biochemistry research because that was what I was exposed to. And I thought I could make a very large impact in biochemistry research. Um, I, I thought that the ripple of biochemistry had a, had a much wider range than computer science because if you develop medicine, it helps a lot of people in a very profound way. And I didn't really have any exposure to computer science or how that could help people. Um, yeah, I I was doing primarily a lot of stem cell research and cancer research um, out of a couple labs at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I was primarily trying to look at the effects of, of aging and develop a better understanding of why humans age and treating aging like a a phenotype, like a disease, such that um, you can look at and identify the mechanisms of why people age and then try and inhibit those mechanisms. Um, So I was, I actually, I wrote a a fairly large paper, um, about 30 pages, uh, a research paper on um, kind of a unifying theory of why, why humans age and, you know, what we can do in order to attack that idea and try and prevent it. Right. How you prevent aging, that's certainly something that I'd be very, very interested in. If you've got some some answers to that, seriously, mail them over. Oh, absolutely. A topic for another podcast. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll have a spinoff podcast. Yeah, a spinoff podcast. There we go. Um, yeah, but I ended up realizing that when I was doing um, biology research, I was moving my hands a lot and just kind of pipetting and laying out petri dishes and working with cells kind of in, in the lab by myself for two hours at a time and not really doing abstract critical thinking. Um, and I found out that I could do a lot more abstract critical thinking in computer science. So it really scratched my itch to kind of use my brain a little bit more than than, uh, than biology did. And so I, I just fell in love with it and I immediately switched uh, kind of in a heartbeat. I just gave it up and I uh, came over to computer science. Well, we're very pleased you did. How does, uh, how does software development and research compare to well, to, to working in a product team, but also kind of you mentioned and touched on the, the elements of critical thinking that you, you can get to do now. How does it how does working for HashiCorp research sort of co- compare to all those things? Yeah, yeah. So um, I to me, I mean, most product teams these days are working in agile, right? They're using some form of agile. Maybe they're using some form of waterfall. If you're working in waterfall, you have a list of requirements up front. Um, in agile, you know, we prefer the term stories, right? But it's pretty much the same thing. Um, but stories in agile are, are typically bite-sized chunks, um, and they're very well defined. They always come with an acceptance criteria. We don't have that in research, right? Um, when we get a problem, it's just a general idea of a pain point um, that is has a non-obvious solution that we can't really figure out. Um, and so we don't have acceptance criteria. Part of the way we investigate our problem means identifying and defining our acceptance criteria of what does it mean for us to have solved this problem? What even is the problem that we're trying to solve? It's this, the we, we get it with a very loose definition and we try and uh, kind of nail that down. Stories in Agile are defined in a, in a matter of days, right? So you can, you can have complete multiple stories in a single sprint. Um, and sprints can either be one week or two week, depending on how small these chunks are. Um, but for research teams, we end up uh, 
having our stories measured in weeks. Uh, we go through many iterations of solutions before we end up with a correct one. So we throw out a lot of code. We backtrack a lot. We, we try things and experiment and fail and we take risks um, a little bit more so than product, which kind of has a, a kind of clear idea of what it means to have accomplished the problem. Um, and, and in research in particular at HashiCorp, uh, it's a little bit different than other research groups because we demand a high quality of correctness in our code and a, a decent code style, which is not necessarily a given for other research groups. We also write docs, which is not necessarily a given for a product either. <laughs> because some of the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but but actually some of the, the production code that exists in console right now around the the the, um, the new implementation on Raft, which, which came out of the paper, was actually written by the research department. You... You set the, the the baseline for that and handed it over to the product team. Is that is that correct? Yeah, there's uh, yes, definitely a, a, li- a little bit of um, of our code has gone back in there. Um, to uh, to be fair, uh, that the work actually started um, in parallel around about the time I, I joined, um, and that was definitely um, you know Ar- Armin and James are the are the lead authors on that, and uh, you know they they laid down the majority of of that. We we actually kind of backed into that one a little bit because um, they had they had started to solve the problem, um, but by then coming back and seeing it through the research lens we did definitely upgrade the solution um, we you know we understand uh, its characteristics a lot better and we were able to tune it um, you know because unless we ran those experiments people were comfortable in, in, in further optimizing so they, they they'd done an amazing job of coming up with something that solved the problem and it was but it was conservative and once we did the analysis uh, we were able to tease apart what what was causing what uh, and yeah We've ended up with something even better as a result. That, that sounds awesome. And and Robbie, I'm going to ask you this because I might be able to um, get some secrets out of you. Can can you uh, can you tell us what you're working on right now? What's what's on the roadmap for HashiCore Research? Come on, there must be something amazingly cool that's going to come out. Give us give us some tidbits. Yeah, well, I can't tell you what we're working on, but I can give you a few teasers. Uh, we have been working on this project for a while. This isn't something that we're just diving into now. We've been working on it since I joined uh, last spring, and uh, John had, had already kind of come up with primarily the idea and kind of nailed down the problem a little bit before that. Um, but we are working on something novel. Uh, we think that our customers will end up using it in dev shops, even like large dev shops, small dev shops. Um, we've kind of already, we've, we've kind of built this idea out of a lot of large enterprises struggling with some of our products and kind of deploying, um, ha- having, having like tier one outages because they, they had a lot of human error in the way that they used our products. Um, Obviously, I can't name the, the companies, but uh, we we're identifying um, sources of human error and locations where uh, the way people are using our products are error prone and maybe, let's say, even misconfiguring um, our applications. And we're trying to provide insight and actionable actionable responses, actionable advice around how to address human configurable error. Um, the goal is ultimately to further automate and secure the way people user HashiCorp tools. Yeah, that's awesome. I know that from a personal speaking, I can say that uh, humans are always the biggest problem in, in computer science, especially when, when I'm writing code. I'm generally my own biggest problem. I just wanted to add, like, I guess we kind of um, 
solved that problem recently on the policy side with with Sentinel, with uh, policy as code, and that human error of like you know someone changing the number of instances to like thousand, and then uh, and then some policy kind of dictating saying like no, this you're not allowed to do that. I think that that's that is just like a normal human evolution uh, that we should probably uh, like software evolution. We should probably try to like uh, kind of you know define boundaries around these these systems that are so powerful, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, we, we, we've created uh, awesome power with uh, the automation that we have. And now we have to make sure that uh, people don't uh, shoot themselves in, in the foot at the speed of light. Armand's favorite phrase, uh, I, I love it, is he says, make sure we're not developing a foot gun, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I'm pretty excited talking to you guys. I, I love chatting to you guys and getting to hang out and, and um and talk about all the things that you're working on. It sounds an amazing area to, to, to spend your career. So, Robbie, you've already talked about how you, you kind of switched focus, but what is it that gets you excited about research? Yeah, so my area of focus in research is actually programming language theory. Um, just kind of more generally, I do program analysis, which means programs that understand programs. Uh, this can either take the form of a compiler, which is a program that translates programs, or even things like linters or data flow analysis tools, which are programs that identify bugs in programs. Uh, that's kind of my area of focus. Um, John picked me up because we initially thought that we might be working on a, a, a programming language solution um, for the problem that we're, that our specific our specific problem that we're now addressing is. Um, turns out, you know, we we, we did it. We, uh, we went a different direction with it. Um, but yeah, it was actually initially because of my interest in programming languages. Uh, I developed an interest in programming languages because I, I kind of randomly met through Boy Scouts, actually. I met the, uh, one of the language designers of, of ADA, the Department of Defense language. Uh, and uh, it was Dr. David Fisher of Carnegie Mellon. And he worked with me kind of very closely in, uh, on, on an, another programming language. And that's what kind of got me interested in it. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I then went on to work with maybe Jonathan Aldrich of Carnegie Mellon for two years on the Wyvern programming language. I added dependent types to the Wyvern compiler, and um, I took a class on program analysis with uh, uh, with Claire Laguess, who's uh, famous from um, Papers We Love. She spoke on a program she wrote called GenProg, which is kind of automated bug detection, like automated defect repair for the cloud. So she spun up a bunch of AWS nodes and ran genetic algorithms across all the cloud and then measured the, the, the cost in order to fix bugs using these genetic algorithms and found out that you know about $7 of AWS compute time will, will yield you an automated fix to a bug. Identify a bug and propose a, a patch for it. Can you? Uh, is that software available for download? Because I was writing some code this morning and um, I, could, I could happily spend seven bucks on on fixing the bugs in that. Yeah, I don't remember if it's Java or C, but I don't know if, I don't think we'll be able to use it at HashiCorp since we're all go, but. <laughs> all right, so I guess I want to ask the same question to John. Um, what got you excited about research, even in the early days when you got into it in Microsoft and what gets you excited today? Sure, but uh, actually just to, to, to talk about Robbie's research a little more. Um, yeah, absolutely, as I said, as he said, uh, you know, I, I was very impressed and interested in, in his area of specialism. And actually at Microsoft Research, what became very apparent to me is that here we are in systems and distributed systems, but uh, you're really bringing programming language, uh, you know, 
discipline to systems work is a very rich area. Look at all these domain-specific languages that we have in HashiCorp and elsewhere. Uh, and generally speaking, that sort of hybridization, generally in research, mixing things from different disciplines is, leads to good stuff. Uh, and programming languages and systems go together so well. Um, and it's definitely good to have him as part of the team. And I'm sure we will be doing more programming language stuff in the future. I guess you can give us some, a couple of links, maybe some, some easy reading material for any of the listeners who might be interested in, in looking at some of the, the, um, the theory behind programming languages and, and some of the things you've been talking about. We can probably put those in the, the, the links at the bottom of the podcast. Oh, that's a dream come true, Nick. I love that idea. <laughs> I can talk about it all day. I'll send you a million links. Awesome. So anyway, uh, yes. Um, so for me, um, some of the same things that led me to go into philosophy actually well, I think are the motivators for me wanting to then do computer science research. I pretty much love love the uh, wide open spaces, the, the, the big questions. It feels like the, the fundamental questions. If, if we don't know the answers to the fundamental questions, then how on earth are we going to navigate on the, the small stuff? And this a skill that you develop in, in philosophy in studying philosophy is that you have to deal with many different arguments and that though they have you know overlapping or possibly conflicting assumptions and you have to somehow hold all of these in your mind simultaneously and weigh up the merits and dismerits of each one um, and typically you have to handle and make your peace with ambiguity there's going to be ambiguity and you you have to not be freaked out by that and these are all things that come back exactly the same in in trying to make sense of all the different possible approaches you could use in research um but then i was also i spent about half my career in product groups and a lot of them were very fast moving product groups the velocity on itunes store for example when when the video ipod and then the iphone was coming out was was very fast and you know, as many product engineers, you have those moments where you think, gosh, if only we had the time to go back and do this properly. Um, and so for me, this is the best of both worlds. It's the, it's the fact that uh, we have the time and the tolerance for risk that usually a product group doesn't have. And we're given that leeway and that allows us to dig a bit deeper but or a lot hopefully a lot deeper but then uh, also because it's industrial the ultimate test for us and the goal is to see this thing successfully deployed so unlike someone in an academic institution who just yes they've managed to convince their peers that this thing should be published great uh, and you're seeing a lot of this more you, you see a lot of academics going and doing time at google or other large companies and uh, but it's that thing of of the ultimate accolade is to see your research actually make a difference in in, in product code so you know it's this applied research um that really um i'm excited about so what are the good uh, good approaches that are critical in research john yeah so First off, always be applying the scientific method. This is computer science, and although sometimes it feels a little bit more like the, the Wild West, we really need to be trying to be more like the hard sciences. We need to state our assumptions. We need to make sure that the data that we test on and the scenarios are representative. We have to construct good experiments. How, what are we measuring? Are we measuring it accurately in a statistically a significant way? Uh, you've got to be prepared to be wrong because – 
and you make there's a, often there's a confirmation bias. You need to resist the temptation to ignore. Oh, that's noise, or that you know I, I, that doesn't fit to my current model. So therefore, I'm I'm going to ignore it. So the scientific method will get everybody a long way in life. Um, being broad-minded. So part of it is being able to make tangential connections to to take that, like I say, taking things from programming languages and putting them into systems. It's it's very important, and it, it can be a big differentiator to to be able to to mix and combine things up to a point uh, you obviously at some point have to rein it in and say okay now we're going to go and build that prototype and, and uh do the experimentation but uh I, I guess i don't i wish i knew where i i'd, I'd pick this up i think at microsoft research when when we were interviewing people who were very accomplished uh, at the bar for even to come and interview uh at, at the msr lab was to have you know done the best dissertation at mit that year and to have had two best papers at top conferences and you know and to have a glowing recommendations from the leaders in the field those were the people we interviewed and then having interviewed five or six of those people and we're now you know spoiled for choice they're all fantastic people who who are we going to offer the job to um certainly being open to collaborating and moving into new new spaces going beyond the area that you've done your previous research um are very important the other one was the notion of research taste and this i think is is actually quite profound that you know typically you can answer a question but as I just discussed, apply the scientific method. You, you you can figure out, well, what would tell me that this is true or false? But the most important thing is to figure out what are the right questions to be asking. Because if you ask the wrong questions, you can go off and answer those. You could spend the next five years answering those questions. But if they're not the right questions to be asking, then then you've wasted your time. And time is the one thing you don't have an infinite amount of. So um, and this, they, they talk about this as a matter of research taste. It's being able to pick, having a good nose for the right question to be asking. So uh, that's a, 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 a capability that you, you cultivate, really. So partly deciding on what research is, is not necessarily scientific, but maybe a little bit of sort of gut feel. You you have to kind of go after something that you may you believe is the right approach, but very, very quickly validate that as to whether it is the right question to be asked. And if not, reevaluate your options. Right, yeah. So it's a funny mix of being very sort of right brain, creative sensing what's the, the possible the possibilities and the connections trying to pick the right one and that uh, say to formulate what what makes good taste how, how on earth would you would you write that down but you you, you practice and you and you, you know, and then then it's the experimental method and well how did that work out and also you look at other people and you look at their work and you say gosh well you know that was a really insightful thing I wonder how you either go and talk to them at a conference or somewhere or, or you you speculate as to how they made that connection and sometimes they tell you in the paper they'll explain the, the serendipity of, 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 of uh, the connection that they made so yeah that, and that's another part of what for me really nourishes me and i love about the job is that there is this very creative dimension of, of uh, picking picking the right questions in the movie when dr Emmett brown fell off the toilet hit his head on the sink and came up with the idea of the flux capacitor in the real world of research that is an actual potential situation yeah the the core approach that we're using in the the project that the nice try getting to, to get robbie to uh, spill the secrets there but um that, that project that we've teased you about um i distinctly remember uh, doing the dishes and looking out the the window into the garden and just sort of not even you know having being focused in vision you know my eyes were, were off in mid-distance and just suddenly occurring to me oh yeah I, that thing i did 
nine years ago. We should try that. But you've never actually fallen off the toilet, hit your head on a bathroom sink, and came up with an idea. I'm, I'm holding that one back as for, for desperate times. Yeah. Just very briefly then, why should a company have a separate research team? That is a great question. Uh, we've already talked about the fact that HashiCorp has always had a very uh, top-down research-driven approach from the very beginning. And and Robbie put it nicely. I think you could say that Mitchell and Armin are are the founding members of of HashiCorp Research. Um, So in one way, just as we grow and functions that previously were a person become a whole team, then uh, having a research organization is, is a way of sort of formalizing this aspect of, of the HashiCorp process. Um, so, but, you know, also generally, not just because of this is the way HashiCorp does things, some ideas need long incubation and, and product teams have to move necessarily as the velocity. And then, and also the perspective that uh, the product team are down in the trenches and if you have a good feedback loop, they're connected to, you know, reports from the field, what, all the different channels. They, they know what needs to be done on the roadmap in the next N months or, you know, one to two years. But they're down, they are down there in the trenches and with, without they don't. They're not connected to what's coming over the horizon in terms of, of new possible techniques, and also by just very definition of being so close to the product, it's very hard for them. To, it would be unfair to give them the mandate of saying, "Oh, now go and design." At the same time as doing all of that, holding down the day job, could you also go and build a completely a vision for a completely new product? So it's just a yeah, it's just a different facet of a of a healthy, robust organization that that once again is focused on workflows and not technologies. We need to be looking over the horizon. We need to have a group that's outside of the existing product groups. Um, now, all of that you could just do with an advanced R and D team. Uh, and for example, there's a great uh, uh, white paper out there. Um, about the founding of Microsoft Research that uh, where the proposal was made to build Microsoft Research. And at that time, they had a big uh, advanced R&D team. Um, but um, partly it was about the, the scope of the risks and then the tolerance for risk. Um, but also, um, I think part of it was, uh, you know, wanting to give back to the academic community. And this is, I think, another sort of core principle, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of all of this, where um, you know, HashiCorp is born out of open source projects and our community. Uh, and we, on, on this, this side of things, we're born out of, uh, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And uh, we would love in any way that we are in the process of contributing back our modest contribution. To, to, to take things forward for, for humanity. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to what's coming next. If, you maybe, if you're going to tell me about it maybe one day, you know, if you maybe we have a couple of drinks. And... <laughs> oh, there we are. <laughs> like the funny, the funny thing is even Nick and I don't know what this thing is. It's just like we've, we've been, we've been, we all are guessing at HashiCorp too, so... A few months' time, we're, we it's yeah we we will be talking very uh, very copiously, and we will we will we'll have to you'll have to have us back, and then we can tell you the uh, the ins and the outs of uh, the, the evolution and the thought process. Well, you know, there's a little conference going on in Amsterdam in June, so maybe if you submit a paper, I might uh, get round to taking a look at it, and you might get lucky. See what we can do. It's been amazing having you both on the show. I'm uh, I'm I'm always in awe of speaking to you and, and I love everything that you're doing and I love you both as well. Um, so very, very last question. Now this one's for you first, Robbie. If you were a chess piece, which chess piece would you be? Uh, well, I, I play a lot of chess, Nick. Do you know that? I know that. 
Yeah, I play a lot of chess. I would. I want to think. Everyone wants to think. I actually have a, a necklace, a king. I like to think I'd be the king, because um, obviously the queen is the most powerful piece, right? It's the, the king is is extremely impotent, and you know that's not a reflection on me so much. Uh, but uh, yeah, I sit, sit back. I'm the thinker. I'm the decision maker. You know, uh, I don't. I'm not. That, I'm not all that. Uh, not all that strong. What about you, John? Well, you know, I'm not, I've never actually thought about this question, uh, so, so it's a good one. Um, not, not many people have. No, I think I'm going to go with a knight. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm still going to have to fill the, the backstory here. It, you know, Is it because of your unorthodox movements well indeed that i think that's what came to mind is uh, you know I, I i have zigged and i have zagged and i and i will continue to do so i think so i i'm gonna go with the the, the non-linear move it's been a pleasure thanks a lot nick misha thanks yeah thanks so much guys you've been listening to HashiCasts with your hosts nick and misha today's guests have been john curry and robbie mckinsey from HashiCore research be sure to tune in next time